0: Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we look at the criminal justice system through the lens of faith. Asking the question, how do we seek the best for both the criminally victimized and the criminally accused? We're going to start by discussing the history of the American criminal justice system, both its successes and failures, and look at the best way to love our neighbor. Is justice love? And joining us to break it all down is Matt Martins. Matt Martins is a trial lawyer and partner at an international law firm in Washington, D.C. He has spent the bulk of his more than 25-year legal career practicing criminal law, both as a federal prosecutor and as a defense attorney. Early in his career, he served as a law clerk to Chief Justice William Rehnquist at the U.S. Supreme Court and is the author of a recent book entitled Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Beverly.
0: So before we get to the book, you are a first-time author. I just would like to hear a little bit about your background, as I just mentioned, in your bio. You've practiced law for quite a few years. What made you get into this practice? What was it about the law that really appealed to you?
1: Well, it's an interesting question uh, to which I can't remember the answer. (laughs) Uh, When I was in high school, I was a science and math person. If you had told me, I would spend my life... Uh, reading, writing, and public speaking, I would not have believed that because none of those were of much interest to me and I wasn't very good a, at them. My, my worst grade in college was in fundamentals of speech and it was a generous grade, as I say. Uh, but it, somewhere along the line uh, in college, I switched from an interest in science and math to thinking I would want to be a lawyer Uh, but but what prompted it in particular, uh, I I honestly don't remember. I guess I'm too old to remember it at this point, Uh, but it was sometime during college that I changed my mind.
0: And you've been both on a defender and prosecutor. What is the difference between working in those, those different areas within law? I'm assuming there's a different mentality that you have going into it.
1: Well, what law school teaches you is to uh, see both sides to every argument. Maybe the thing that frustrates the public about lawyers is you know we can we see both sides and can argue both sides. But that's what law school trains you to do: is to to take the case that you're given and make the best argument uh, in favor of that. There is something though different about being a prosecutor, or at least there should be. And, and I think it was very much true at the U.S. Department of Justice, which is that your job really is to get it right. Uh, your job, and this is very much the ethos there, is that your job is to figure out what actually happened. It's not just to prosecute every case that comes across your desk. It, it may not be a case that's worthy of prosecution, either uh, because the person is innocent or just because uh, on the equities uh, as a matter of discretion, it's not a case that sh- should be pursued. So one of the nice things about being, being a prosecutor when I was a prosecutor was you didn't feel constrained to, to argue the case just because it was, the US was your client, you had to argue it a particular way. you could actually you could actually, and you should actually try to figure out what the right answer is and pursue that.
0: And I don't think you set out to become an author yet. you have written this book called Reforming Criminal Justice: A Christian Proposal, as I mentioned when I introduced you. It came out this past fall, I believe. What was the impetus for you to write this book?
1: It was really the encouragement of others along the way while i was going to uh, while i was being while i've been a lawyer including while i was a prosecutor i went to seminary uh, part-time at dallas theological seminary and so when our country started talking so much about criminal justice beginning probably in 2014 with the events in ferguson missouri and then continuing up through the 2020 with george floyd and the riots and the protests that followed A lot of people were discussing these issues. A lot of people in churches were discussing these issues. And uh, two of my then former pastors, Isaac Adams, who had had since moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and Garrett Kell, who uh, left the church I was at to be a pastor in, in Alexandria, Virginia, both actually add something here. You have experience both as a prosecutor and a defense lawyer, and you also have theological training in seminary. Uh, we think you could be valuable here. And, and I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't the type of person who had a manuscript just sitting around waiting for that day when someone would, you know, discover me. Uh, I was in some ways a reluctant author, uh, but with their encouragement, decided to give it a try.
0: And I think a lot of people look at the justice system or how people view it either as you're somebody who's tough on crime or you're somebody who's soft on crime, but I think there's a lot of nuance within that. And so, why don't you just give us a broad overview of what really our justice system is intended to do. How does it function? And then we'll get into whether or not you think it's functioning properly.
1: Well, I guess if you say what it's intended to do from a secular perspective, what what the justice system is there to uh, uh, punish, at least at one level is to punish the people who are doing wrong. Uh, The theories behind criminal justice are, uh, incapacitation, deterrence, uh, among others, and in ref- uh, remediation or restoration uh, of the situation. So, so you could have a justice system that's de- designed to incapacitate people. So the people who have committed crimes are uh, imprisoned so that they're prevented from committing future crimes. You could have a goal of uh, deterring. So you wanna punish people so that people don't commit crimes again or that other people see the example of that person punished and don't commit crimes in the first place. Um, But you could also have a a goal of of, uh, restoring someone, uh, trying to educate them perhaps while they're in prison or uh, help them learn a skill that that causes them to choose a different path in life. So there can be different goals of the justice system. In other words, it's always designed to punish, but punish to what end? I think different people have different views about that um, when it comes to criminal justice.
0: And one of the narratives that we heard, you mentioned George Floyd, especially during the George Floyd time and with his death, was that we have systematic racism within our justice system. When you think about that, where do you land on it? Again, I think it's probably complex and nuanced. But when somebody asks you that question, what is your answer?
1: I would say it's complicated. And I think it's unhelpful to speak in a broad brush. So you can certainly look at data and see certain elements of the justice system even today are infected by uh, considerations of race. Uh, Two areas in particular, uh, lots of statistical studies that have controlled for factors other than race have nonetheless concluded that race is a factor in the implementation of the death penalty in the United States. Um, And there's also a long history in the United States uh, acknowledged by the Supreme Court in an opinion by Brett Kavanaugh as recently as 2019, that race infects the way that prosecutors select juries. Uh, But I think taking those particulars where we can look at the data and look at statistical studies and see the reality is a far cry from saying everything about the system is racist or that it's a system infected. through and through by racism, from policing to prosecution to incarceration. That's not the view I take in my book. I think it's much more complicated than that. And ultimately what I'm concerned about is whether the system is operating in a just way. And that's what I try to look at and not focus entirely on trying to prove uh, that it's a a racist system. Ultimately, I want it to be a just system and it can be just or unjust in in ways uh, unconnected with race. And I wanna focus on those two.
0: And so in addition to race, one of the things I've thought about just in preparation for this interview is how much somebody's uh, wealth plays a role. So for example, people who are well-known, do they get off on easier sentences or no sentencing at all? Um, when somebody is well-known, is there an unfair balance with how the average person would be treated versus somebody who is known?
1: So you've mentioned two things there, sort of notoriety and wealth. So Uh, With regard to wealth, I think there's no doubt that the system treats people differently. I mean, Brian Stevenson of Just Mercy fame is famous for saying that uh, we have a system that treats you better if you're guilty and rich than if you're poor and innocent. And I think that that's uh, actually true. In terms of notoriety or or, or fame, probably fame cuts against you in some ways in the system. Uh, So wealth helps you, but fame can cut against you because prosecutors are looking to make their name and it's easier to make their name on prosecuting somebody who's well known um, than prosecuting someone who's obscure. So there's probably a risk that prosecutors will reach and pursue harder if someone, if the if the suspect is famous than if they're not.
0: And so getting to the what we're all trying to attain, or I think the majority of people is this notion of justice. And so that, that's a balance. That is just to the people who've been victimized, but also I would say just to the person to make sure that the penalty fits the crime, that somebody isn't over-prosecuted or in jail longer than they should be. Um, when you look at justice in our system, how should we measure that? How are we doing?
1: Well, I think the the core of justice, particularly as a Christian and as scripture describes it, is judging cases accurately. Uh, that's most fundamentally what it means to to judge our to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, to act justly toward them is to judge their cases accurately, and that means judge the cases of both uh, the for those uh, for the benefit of those who are victimized, but also for the punishment, the discipline of those who have committed crimes. Uh, and in terms of accuracy, I think our system has a lot to commend it. We have a lot of procedures built into our constitution that are designed to achieve accuracy. At the same time, we know since the advent of forensic DNA technology in August of 1989 that over 3,400 people have been exonerated after having been convicted and spent uh, at times decades in prison for crimes they, they didn't commit. And when I say exonerated, I don't mean someone whose conviction was reversed because of a legal technicality, I mean someone who factually didn't commit the crime and yet was convicted and imprisoned. Over 3,400 people have spent over 30,000 years collectively in prison, just since 1989, for crimes they didn't commit. And I think that we can see ways in which our system operates uh, that are causing that. And that's really what I'm advocating for in my book, is that we correct some of those malfunctions in the process of the system, so we can avoid wrongly convicting people and can convict the right people, both for the benefit of the victims but also for the benefit of the wrongdoer because they need that correction.
0: And you often tweet about individuals who have been exonerated, like you were saying, some of them spending decades in prison. One of the things I've wondered is obviously, you can't get those years back, it's absolutely tragic and terrible on so many levels. Do you think the United States or a state owes that person something then when they've got it so wrong? How do they begin a life after decades of being imprisoned?
1: So my view is certainly that we should in some way compensate individuals for that. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the 1950s in a case called Imbler versus Pacman that you cannot bring a federal civil rights lawsuit against a prosecutor who wrongly convicts you by violating your constitutional rights, even if it was intentional. Uh, which is a pretty shocking thing that the prosecutor is absolutely immune in the prosecutor's office from paying damages to those people. But a number of states have set up compensation funds uh, where if someone's wrongly convicted, they can get a certain amount each year. Um, and the reality is those numbers tend to be pretty low and it, it can be very hard for some people who are exonerated to uh you know, if they've spent 10, 20, 30, 40 years in prison literally for crimes they didn't commit, they're late into life. It can become very hard without skills and without a resume and without work experience and sometimes without good health uh, to start over from zero. So I do think we should we should be as a society making that right to those people as much as we can.
0: How can we ensure that we get it right more often than not? So how do we avoid these wrongful convictions? Obviously with technology or same forensic evidence we are able to tell things much better than what we did before. What else can we do? Well,
1: there's really two things that the way our system set up as an adversarial system means that getting accurate verdicts means that both sides is a resource so that they can present the evidence that supports their case. The jury can't decide a case if they've only got one side of the story. I mean, everybody knows that you hear one side from one child who comes in and tells you that Johnny hit him. If you you hear the other side, uh, you don't know what actually happened. And yet, we know that in the United States, 60 years after the decision in Gideon versus Wainwright, where the Supreme Court said that the poor are entitled to a lawyer paid for by the state, we know that states do very little uh, to actually fund defense lawyers for the poor. This study after study by the American Bar Association looking at states from Rhode Island to Missouri to, New- to Louisiana to Colorado to Oregon, state after state shows that they're funding about one-third the number of lawyers needed for the number of crimes prosecuted in the state. And that under, underfunding of lawyers means the lawyers don't have sufficient time uh, to represent those people, to investigate their case, and to present the facts effectively on their behalf. Uh, and we know that that's part of what contributes to wrongful convictions. We also know that uh, eyewitness identification is not as reliable as most people would think. Uh, I think most people would think if someone comes in and testifies, I saw that person do it, that that's highly reliable in fact it's it's pretty unreliable uh, if you're identifying someone who you didn't know prior to the event in question if you just happen to be a bystander so just again to go back to forensic dna technology uh, a study was done by brandon garrett a professor at duke law school where he looked at the first 250 dna exonerations after the advent of forensic dna technology in august of 1989 Um, and Uh, overwhelmingly, those cases were cases involving eyewitness identification, sometimes one, two, three, four, in one instance, five eyewitnesses testified that a person did it. And we know as a scientific certainty that the person didn't do it. And so it's not bad faith on behalf of witnesses. But I think jurors tend to put over reliance on the ability of our minds to actually identify people, particularly in a cross racial way. Um, uh, to identify someone who committed a crime. Uh, As much as we'd like to say, I remember just what happened, you don't actually remember just what happened. And that's what we know about the human memory.
0: And then we get into the other side of our criminal justice system, which is once somebody is convicted, there is some sort of punishment for that. Uh, We could talk about sentencing. And when I think about the criminal justice reform efforts that we have had in the past few years, probably most notably under President Trump, some criminal justice reform under him, his presidency, it has to do with the sentencing side. Um, I'm assuming we're putting a lot of things off the table if we're just looking at sentencing, but what can you tell us about how we're doing once we are sentencing people? Is it usu- Does it usually fit the crime, the penalty fit the crime or not?
1: So I would say no, and, and let me just explain briefly why. So while we think of our U.S. justice system as a system of trials, that's what we see on TV, on Law & Order, or in movies... The reality is that about 95 percent of criminal cases are resolved through plea bargaining rather than through verdicts at trial and the way we get uh, people to plead guilty to crimes uh is when when they have a right to a jury you say how do we get people who have a constitutional right to a jury how do we get 95 percent of them to give up that jury trial right and plead guilty and the answer is either by threatening sentences that are unduly severe or offering sentences that are unduly lenient uh that's the only way you get 95 percent of people people don't just walk in and say sure i'll give up my right to a jury trial for the same sentence i'd get after a jury trial i mean who wouldn't play for fumbles at that point the way you get people to give up their right to a jury trial is by threatening them with an unjustly severe sentence after trial or offering them an unjustly lenient sentence before trial if they'll give up that right to a trial and so either way the entire system is premised on the notion of unjust sentencing. Everybody, whether you're a law and order conservative or a bleeding heart liberal, you should hate a system that operates based on unjust sentences, both lenient and unjustly severe.
0: How do we fix that? Remove plea bargains or what? what is the answer?
1: Well, there's a difference between offering a plea bargain where you say the just sentence, let's just say, say hypothetically, the just sentence is 10 years. And we say, if you plead guilty, uh, you'll get five years or two years. You know, 10 years and two years can't both be the just sentence for the same crime. Um, That's very different than, and that's what American style plea bargaining does. It has huge disparities between what you would get after trial versus what you'd get if you uh, plead guilty before trial. That's very different than saying, if you plead guilty, you'll get nine years as opposed to 10 years. We can provide some benefit as an administ- to avoid the uh, administrative inconvenience of doing a trial, but at the same time, no one will be coerced into uh, pleading because of a one-year difference, and also the difference between nine years and ten years. I mean, I don't think what a just sentence is is so precise that we can pin it down to where you would say, you know, the just sentence is nine years and five and a half months. Like, you know, it might be ten years give or take. And so, I think that you could have a plea bargaining system where off that offered a modest benefit for pleading guilty but didn't so deviate from what the just sentence was that you could either coerce people into pleading guilty who were innocent, and we know that happens, or being offering people sentences that are unjust, either too severe or too lenient.
0: And once somebody is in the system, so to speak, there are a lot of different ways um, maybe (laughs) somebody either can be rehabilitated while they're locked up or somebody actually can get worse when we think about holding people for uh whatever their their level of time is do you think we should focus more on rehabilitation because i've thought about people who do get out we talked about those who were exonerated but people let's say who are guilty of the crime they've committed if they were put in jail before technology how do they even get a job after? I mean, should we be focusing more on rehabilitation for a certain subset of people so that they can enter into society again and be contributing to society?
1: Well, the reality is they're coming back. Uh, They're coming back into our society. Uh, Unless they get a life sentence, you know, most people are going to serve some term of years and they're going to be coming back. And the question is, uh, I think that we should be asking is, particularly as Christians who want to love our neighbor as ourselves, you know, what is it that we can do uh, to try to restore this person? Uh, Whether you want to call it rehabilitation or use a Christian word like repentance. Um, If the reality is that someone is coming back to society, I assume we don't want them to come back more a hardened criminal than they went to prison as. Uh, And so it seems to me that it only makes sense that we should be trying to use those years of incarceration to persuade people to change their mind, to train people to change their mind, to train people to be productive members of society. I mean, that's certainly my goal for my uh, fellow citizens is that they would be productive members of society. And I hope that we would design a system that sought that goal.
0: So we, anything I'm leaving off the table, I'm sure there are lots, but big, big areas where you say this is something we really need to look at reforming in our criminal justice system.
1: Uh, No, I think you've hit all the big areas, uh, sentencing and what the purpose of that is, uh, the providing of counsel for the poor, uh, plea bargaining. uh, I think we've talked about the key areas.
0: And so is anybody doing anything about this, whether on a state level, on a federal level? It seems like a lot of these are left off the table when we think about, even when we hear the term reforming criminal justice, I don't often hear about a lot of these categories we discussed.
1: Yeah, I think that if there's a bipartisan agreement about uh, anything in America, it's that we don't like lawyers and we don't like (laughs) criminals. Uh, And so we're not looking to increase the number of defense lawyers for the poor. And we're not really that concerned about what happens with criminals. I mean, I think a lot of people, their attitude is if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Um, And what I'm trying to argue for is a more Christian view that says that our obligation is to love our neighbors as ourselves, all of our neighbors. Um, even the unlovely neighbors, even the unlovable neighbors, seemingly unlovable neighbors. So that, and that what loving them means is judging their cases accurately, punishing them accurately, and ultimately seeking their good by disciplining them through the system and providing relief to those who are victimized.
0: And final area, I just wanted to touch on a little bit. A, a lot of people are concerned about the increase in crime in cities across this country. You live in the D.C. area. I visit there often, have sen- seen the increase in crime and seen younger and younger people committing crimes, repeating the same crimes multiple times because they're never kept within the system. They're, they're let out. What do you make of what's taking place?
1: I mean, it's madness. I mean, what's happening in DC right now is really out of control. Uh, and it's not for the good of anyone. Uh, being, uh, being unduly lenient and allowing crime to run rampant is not only victimizing uh, people who are uh, killed. I just saw yesterday, I think one or two um, prominent people were killed in what seemed like a relatively safe area of town um, that's obviously not good for them and their families and the tragedy they face, but it's not good for the person who did it. It's wrecking their life as well in a, in a very real way. Um, and uh, it's the government's obligation to protect its citizens, the most fundamental obligation. Um, and it's a real tragedy what's occurring in particularly, as you said, in D.C. right now. It's, it's, it's a pretty unsafe situation.
0: And I know that a lot of this stems from the defund the police movement which took which took place, but I know a lot of residents in d c are going to their council meetings um, upset about what's taking place. Do you think that the tide may be turning in the near future where we actually do punish people for the crime that they commit?
1: I mean what I'm advocating for is that we punish the the right people uh, for the crimes they committed um, in the right proportion to the seriousness of the crime they committed. Uh, That's what I want uh, to persuade fellow Christians of, that that's what that's what where we should stand on this issue. And I think it's where a lot of people stand on this issue is that it it does no one any good to let crime run amok. It drives business out of town. And my wife and I were talking the other day about a CVS that several CVS stores that closed down in various sections of town because they couldn't keep uh, products on the shelves because of organized uh, robbery, uh, theft, thievery groups. Um, who would show up the first day that the shelves were restocked. I mean, that doesn't do good for anybody. It doesn't do any good for that community that's deprived of of uh, a needed service. It doesn't do any good for the owners of the store who lose all, all the product. And, and that way of life for those people committing those crimes is, is ultimately self-destructive even if they don't see it. So uh, what I want is a system that loves all of those groups by operating a functioning justice system.
0: And that's why I think this book is such an important one. I I am glad that people encouraged you to write it. Again, the name of it is Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Matt Martins, thank you so much. And we look forward to your new book as well.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, IWF does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we love it if you share this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of Here at IWF. Thanks for watching.